Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, the shutdown countdown starts on Capitol Hill. I'm going to predict unusually that I think there might be a small government shutdown. The end of year buying blitz is about to begin. I see huge spending activity, the highest levels in the last couple weeks of the fiscal year ever. And Veterans Affairs prepares a data connection with the Pentagon. We're very close to announcing a joint data and analytics strategy with the Department of Defense our biggest partner in the federal government. It's Wednesday, September 22nd, 2021. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon at four o'clock, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. The Army has a nominee for its top acquisition job. The Biden administration selected Doug Bush to become Assistant Secretary for Acquisition, Logistics and Technology. Bush is in the job as the Acting Assistant Secretary now. The General Services Administration will offer a government-wide acquisition contract for cloud services later this year. The vehicle will follow on a request for information the agency released the day after President Biden's cyber executive order in May. The contract will be part of a cloud marketplace GSA will develop in fiscal 2021. The controversy over the Jedi cloud contract continues before the Supreme Court. John Hewitt-Jones is managing editor of FedScoop. He's writing at fedscoop.com about this. John, what could possibly be left to discuss about the Jedi contract, given the department has said they're not continuing to pursue it? Welcome. Thanks, Francis. Yeah, I think this is a kind of an interesting addendum to what's what's been a kind of long-running saga. Um, Oracle on Friday submitted a brief to the Supreme Court, basically arguing that lawsuit, which is separate from the lawsuit filed by Amazon against uh, the DOD, it shouldn't be dismissed out of hand just because the Department of Defense has said that they're scrapping the contract. What is striking to me in your story on fedscoop.com is this quote from the court filing. Cases do not become moot simply because a defendant issues a press release claiming to have ceased its misconduct. Oracle is really pressing the issue here. Procurement attorneys tell me all the time companies need to be careful about suing their clients or suing organizations they want to continue to be their clients. This doesn't sound like Oracle is pulling any punches at all in this filing, John. I think it really sort of hinges on this legal question of mootness, right? Um, you know, a court can only decide on an issue where it has jurisdiction. And if it's found that the, the, the court doesn't, the, the issue is in hand, you know, simply as it doesn't have relevance anymore to the court and they don't have they, they don't have enough information to be able to make a decision, then this won't continue. I think, um, you know, maybe a good way to think about it is that, uh, uh, you know, judges like you or me, they're always keen to clear their desks um, to get, you know, to, to get is- issues or uh, to, to only be to be using their time in a in a, in a useful manner. So um, I think it'll be uh, it'll be interesting to see where this goes. Um, and yeah, as you say, Oracle, uh, it's in their submission to the court, they were kind of punchy and direct, but yeah, uh, reinforcing the, the points they've made, the, 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 the legal arguments they've made previously. Do they give any indication in the court filing what Oracle considers to be a good outcome? What are they going for here exactly? Do we have a sense of that, John? I think very simply, they, they, they're trying to make sure their case continues to be heard. I was speaking to a few legal sources this morning who were just explaining this concept of mootness really is a, a gray area. So. Oracle really are, are, are doing what they can to, to make sure their case, if possible, continues to be heard. John Hewitt-Jones, thank you very much for coming on. Your story's up at fedscoop.com, and I appreciate your time. Thanks for having me, Francis. 
CyberScoop is presenting Cyber Week, October 18th through the 22nd. It is a week-long cyber festival with hundreds of events and top leaders from tech, education, and government. They're going to be there both digitally and in person. You can learn more and sign up now at cyberweek.us. A continuing resolution to fund the federal government to keep it open through the beginning of December is through the House of Representatives now. It passed with only eight days left in this fiscal year. David Hawkins is senior editor at The American Leader. David, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. We've been doing this now, talking about shutdowns for like 13 years, and we keep finding ourselves. This is Groundhog Day. It's the same stuff year after year after year, David. Is there anything different about fiscal 2022 than all of the things, all of the other years that we've talked about potential shutdowns and CRs? Welcome. Well, thank you. Um, is there anything different? I suppose in this case, there are a couple of things that are different to make the politics a little bit dicier. One is it's been a while since the party in power tried to allow uh, an increase in the debt ceiling to catch a ride on a continuing resolution. It is also unusual, but not unheard of, for the party in power to try and sweeten that offer uh, by adding $35 billion and change in supplemental money, much of it to try to attract Republican votes. In this case, it's $29 billion uh, for recovery from Hurricane Ida, much of it in Louisiana, where there are two Republican senators, another $6 billion, I believe, to help resettle refugees. So those, those things change the dynamics. By and large, it's the same story, same lyrics with a slightly different tune. Those of us with really long memories only can remember 25 years ago was the last time, I believe, that Congress produced all 12 spending bills that it's supposed to produce and got them all signed by the start of the fiscal year on October 1st. How did we get to this place this year? I don't I don't have time to go back and talk about all 25 years, David. But how did we get here now? And what does the way forward look like? Because, as I said, the House passed this bill. Who knows what's going to happen in the Senate? We should note the need to keep the government stores open on October 1st is a little bit more immediate than this debt limit challenge. We are still an imprecise few weeks away from that moment where the Treasury says we really cannot pay our bills without an increase in the debt limit. Janet Yellen now says it is sometime before the end of October. Uh, the next time she speaks on this topic or writes on this topic, we will probably get what's what's called a, a drop dead date when the Treasury will know more precisely where its financial position is and will say October 25th or some date. But it's, it's not October 1st. So we have time there. Obviously, you know, how do we get here? I mean, golly, the appropriations process got almost no notice this year because brand new administration was focused on bigger fiscal policy fishes. First, there was COVID package, $1.9 Then it was this infrastructure bill. Now it's, say, I call it the safety net bill. The, the Democrats are having some problems marketing this thing because it keeps being referred to as the $3.5 trillion bill without any reminder of what that money is for. It's a social safety net expansion bill. So all of those things have, have crowded out the basic work of just changing the government's spending priorities on the departments and agencies that keep the government running. I went back and checked, and your record of prognosticating what will happen is really, really good. That's why I keep calling you. What do you see happening in the coming weeks that avoids a government shutdown? At the moment, the dynamic, the, the game of chicken, if you want to use that cliche, is that the Democrats are saying, 
we want to keep the government open only if we suspend, in other words, allow federal borrowing to continue unabated until after the election. And I want to just stop here for one moment and, and puncture a myth or try to puncture a myth. Raising the debt limit allows borrowing to pay the bills for decisions that Congresses of both parties and presidents of both parties have made in the past. Raising the debt limit does not open the spending floodgates for whatever Joe Biden and the Democratic majority want to do now. This is about paying our obligations from the past. Raising the debt ceiling allows those bills to get paid. It is not about new spending. So Mitch McConnell's uh, effort to conflate that with the Republican leader and say, we're not going to raise the debt so the Democrats can go on a spending spree is disingenuous at best. My prediction will be that the, the Democrats will keep playing this game of chicken into next week, that the Republicans will keep their position going, and that, yeah, I'm going to predict unusually that I think there might be a small government shutdown. Wow. Because I think, the, I think it is in the Republicans have concluded it is in their interest to destabilize things as much as possible, to try and further hurt what little momentum uh, seems to exist at the moment for President Biden's agenda, both the hard infrastructure bill and the safety net bill. So I wouldn't be surprised if there is a short shutdown and that that then focuses the mind after a few days on the need to not only reopen the government, but figure out how to raise the debt responsibly. All right. That's not what I wanted to hear, but that's why I come to you. You tell me what you really think's going on. David Hawking's The American Leader. It's great to see you, my friend. Thank you. Thank you so much, Francis. You can read more about the end of the fiscal year at fedscoop.com. Coming up on today's Daily Scoop podcast, data lakes at the Department of Veterans Affairs are getting bigger and bigger. The VA's chief data officer, Shmendra Paul, will explain on today's Daily Scoop podcast, and you can get the lineup for the program every day ahead of time on Twitter. Just follow the show at Daily Scoop Pod. Either a shutdown or a continuing resolution that starts October 1st has precedent in the federal government. Joe Jordan is chief executive officer of Octoparo. He's former administrator of federal procurement policy and the world's most degenerate Mac Jones fan. Joe, it's great to see you. Thanks for coming on the program. Sorry about the Patriots crack, but we have a history there. We'll talk about that toward the end of the conversation. You told me yesterday, you don't think there is as much of a chance of a shutdown as David just talked about a moment ago, or Larry Allen talked about on yesterday's Daily Scoop podcast. Why are you a little more optimistic, at least, than some of the other folks that are thinking about this, Joe? Welcome. Thanks, Francis, and thanks for having me. Um, so yeah, I would say the odds of a shutdown are, are a little bit less than 50-50. So um, with these other kind of smart folks who have followed this for a long time, just as I have saying, uh, there are large odds. It doesn't shock me, but I think what's going to happen here is that the um, continuing resolution bill, which currently contains the debt ceiling increase, those will be decoupled. The CR of some sort will pass. I bet it will be something like the proposed nine weeks that gets us to December. Um, and then the debt ceiling fight will happen on a separate track. And, and I know you have a very sophisticated audience, but just as a reminder, if the CR passes, so there are appropriations, but the debt ceiling is not increased, that does not cause a shutdown. It would potentially cause all sorts of terrible things to the full faith and credit of the United States government, but does not shut down the federal government the way uh, it lapse in appropriations will. You were at OMB when the last shutdown happened. What did you see from inside that operation, Joe? Yes, yeah, shutdowns are awful. And I don't think people 
really um, internalize that. I mean, the Standard Poor's said the the shutdown in 2013 that that I helped lead the response to cost about 24 billion dollars to the U.S. economy. You know, 800,000 federal employees are immediately and indefinitely put on leave, and even that doesn't save money because in every single shutdown, we've retroactively paid uh, federal employees as we should. Um, that was a 16-day shutdown. Every day, you had a team of uh, folks across the government working on hundreds of different questions that are wholly unnecessary um, to make sure that we weren't violating the, you know, big law that governs shutdowns called the Anti-Deficiency Act um, and making sure we we're only spending money on um, accepted activities or what's commonly referred to as essential activities by the government. Um, and, and it's a mess. You know, we did the best we could. And I think we did, relatively speaking, um, a really good job. But it, it really takes everyone's eye off the ball on delivering the uh, critical mission uh, programs and services um, by federal agencies and puts it on, hey, am I allowed to do this? And what about that? And Sally, who's furloughed, is actually the only one we just realized who was a key to this. But we took her laptop when she was furloughed, so she couldn't check email. So can I send someone to Sally's house to get her to log in? And it's just, it's just awful. With only eight days left in the fiscal year, that work's already starting, I imagine, isn't it? Yeah, well, that, the 2013 shutdown issue was around um, Affordable Care Act funding. And, you know, we needed to, and the, the president needed to send a signal that a shutdown was completely unnecessary. We believe Congress would do their job and pass a bill by the end of the year. And so we were, conti- the, you know, uh, public-facing folks were continuously saying, well, we're not really planning for a shutdown. We're not really planning for a shutdown. Meanwhile, two or three of us in the bowels of the Eisenhower Executive Office building had four-inch thick binders full of uh, playbooks from past shutdowns, um, you know, legal press and things like that, that we were kind of going through so that if it, if there was a shutdown, we would be ready. And so there's this dichotomy of, on one hand, the kind of folks dealing with Congress and the media are saying, no need for a shutdown. We're confident a deal will be reached. But those of us who deal with kind of internal operations are like, yeah, you can't just turn this planning on on the last day. And so I would assume it's going the same way right now. Um, what happens between now and then, though, is the end of this fiscal year. What do you see going on in the marketplace, if anything, that is noteworthy given, number one, the huge amount of money that's in the market as a result of all of the spending is another issue I discussed with Larry Allen yesterday. And what do you see potentially as the impact of the shutdown coming where agencies are saying we should get as much activity done in the next eight days as we possibly can because we don't know if we'll be here October 1st? You know what, Francis, that's a big reason why I'm a little bit more bullish on, you know, the odds of there not being a shutdown. Because in 2013, you know, at this point in September, you had Ted Cruz in front of a camera 24-7 marching over to the House saying, guys, shut this down, no dollars for Obamacare, all that crap. You don't see that now. You know, Clinton Gingrich in 95-96, that fight had been going on for weeks and months, and, and you could feel it coming. And even with either the two annoying little kind of one- or two-day tiny shutdowns during the Trump years or, you know, the last day when everybody had agreed we're going to pass this budget and then the right-wing media put pressure on the president, he said, okay, unless you include border wall funding, I'm not going to sign anything. You, you, everybody, you know, my mom knew this stuff was being discussed. Right now, 
you know, there's not that sort of huge debate. And, and so, you know, I, I really think despite the Senate Republicans intransigence on raising the debt ceiling, something they did without issue three times during the Trump administration, um, I, I think those things, again, will be decoupled. You'll get a CR pass because I don't know who wins the, the kind of PR kind of issue right now, as opposed to like each previous time, it was clear someone wanted the FaceTime of saying, I shut down the government. I don't see that now. So um, that's actually a big thing. I don't see a lot of um, unnormal activity. I see huge spending activity. And, you know, and as Larry said yesterday, perhaps, you know, the highest levels in the last couple of weeks of the fiscal year ever. But that's kind of normal and not indicative of uh, higher low odds of a potential shutdown. All right, Joe. Um, I mentioned Mac Jones at the beginning of this conversation. How did you find yourself transitioning in just 18 months from the greatest quarterback in the history of the National Football League to some guy that I never heard of before yesterday? Oh, my gosh. I love Mac Jones. I mean, his ability to see the field, to make the right decision quickly. It is, and I know the hyperbole involved in this statement, truly Brady-esque. And oh, uh, I am very excited and bullish on the Patriots' future. Now, your listeners can also factor that into my prognostication on shutdown odds. But, um, you know, your prior guests who have, have put high odds against shutdowns, have imperfect track records of prognostication as well. So but just say uh, it, we'll just see. say it, just say it right well, out. You know, when I was listening to yesterday's podcast and I love the, the new show, Francis, Thank um, you. you know, I heard Larry say, Oh, you know, I think there's pretty high odds and it immediately made me think of, and Larry's a good friend and we're directors of the German round table together, but it made me think of when I got nominated for the office of federal procurement policy, he gave a quote to federal computer week about, you know, Oh, there's not enough time left in the, fiscal year for something like this to happen. Joe's not getting confirmed. I doubt it. And uh, about a month later, I was confirmed by the Senate. No problem. So, you know, Mr. Allen uh, is a wonderful person, but has uh, imperfect prognostication skills as well. I will reiterate the word degenerate Mac Jones fan, Joe Jordan. Thanks very much as always, my friend. I love it, Francis. Thank you. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, coming on Thursday's program, Building Innovation in the Veterans Health Administration. Dr. Ryan Vega of VHA is on Thursday's Daily Scoop podcast. It debuts at 4 o'clock Thursday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Department of Veterans Affairs is celebrating a data strategy milestone. That strategy includes five goals for the agency to work toward, Shmendra Paul is the Chief Data Officer at VA. Shmendra, welcome. It's great to see you again. Nine months old, your data strategy is, and you write in this strategy that you're uh, making progress on VA as a learning institution. Why is it important to think about VA as a learning institution? Shmendra, welcome. Thank you, Francis. So glad to be here. Uh, VA has a proud history of innovation and has some of the top data science and innovation talent in the country. With our data strategy, we're focusing on enterprise integration and use of data as a strategic asset. Two, two things I'd highlight. One is uh, we've introduced a methodology around key analytic questions, right? Being really clear on the question that you want to answer, whether it's to drive operational decision support, innovation, or what have you. And so doing that then allows us to look at when we understand the question, what are the data assets we can bring to bear and we can iterate between the two. Uh, more broadly, as part of implementing the Evidence Act, uh, I have a peer evaluation officer 
uh, and a whole learning agenda that we're putting together uh, according to OMB guidance that ties to our strategic plan. And that's been a wonderful process of helping tie the organization together and align and really be clear about the key questions that we need to answer to better serve veterans. You've been at VA since before the Evidence Act passed, if I remember correctly. What impact has it had on the way that VA approaches data, the Evidence Act I'm referring to, Shmendra? Yeah, the Evidence Act uh, passed in early 2019, and I joined in uh, September of 2019, so a little bit later. Uh, but the role, I feel, was created by Evidence Act, and it's had a tremendous impact on, on VA. We do have a learning culture. Uh, VHA, for example, is committed to being a high-reliability organization, right? learning and improving, VBA, NCA, the same. Um, but with the Evidence Act, there's a lot more focus on integrating our data, bridging data stovepipes. Really, we think of data as our superpower. Um, you know, and if that data comes from this unique public trust mission we have to serve 19.2 million veterans. Um, and so the challenge for us is integrating and better managing that data to make it more timely and useful to support operations, also to you know drive analytics and evidence building. So yeah, Evidence Act has really given us uh, an additional bit of lift to, to do that sort of thing. All right. I mentioned five goals at the beginning of this conversation that are included in this data strategy. We have the data strategy linked at fedscoop.com. Stewardship, analytics, technology, people, and governance. When you built this strategy, how did you decide that those were the five things out of the, I'm sure, many things that you could have chosen, Shmendra? How did you decide those were the five that you really wanted to pursue hard? Yes, thank you for that. We're aligned under the federal data strategy, as is every other federal uh, agency. And uh, the federal data strategy talks about these concepts. We also have really latched on to the data management body of knowledge, and we use the uh, CMMI, Carnegie Mellon uh, Institute, uh, data management maturity model, right? So we did a maturity assessment in 2019 before I arrived on a scale of one to five. Our maturity as an enterprise was 1.9. So, you know, relatively immature as an enterprise, pockets of excellence, right? The whole idea of, um, you know, different programs, different organizations are doing well, but as an enterprise, we have a journey to travel to better integrate and mature. So all of that drove the, uh, the five goals. And as you, as you highlight those goals, stewardship, analytics, technology, people, governance, it's holistic. It's holistic. So we're trying to come at this and build capacity. Uh, we're making progress along all of the, uh, um, uh, all the dimensions of the goals. One thing I'd highlight is in addition to the goals of the strategy, we have a series of priority objectives that are mission-based, right? So uh, while we're building capacity and capability, we're keeping that line of sight to mission priorities that tee to the VA strategic plan and the secretary's priorities, operational priorities around the department, and then be able to group like requirements around stewardship, around analytics, around technology to drive enterprise integration and improvements. The end of this strategy, uh, you have three points under the topic, the way forward, authentic, authoritative, and auditable data based on an enterprise-wide framework of secure primary sources, federated capability to manage ex exchange and process data, and much greater transparency and accountability. How are you shaping the goal, the five goals, to push you toward those three transformations that you have listed under the way forward, Shmendra? Well, I come back to our public trust mission. We serve veterans. We serve them over their lifetime. 
it's the same veteran, whether we serve from the health side, the benefit side, a specific program, it's on us to make sure we have an authoritative view of the veteran and we're responsible stewards of that data on behalf of the veteran individually and as a population. So that's the first one about authentic, authoritative, auditable data. Um, federation. Yes, we're a federated organization, right? Different administrations, the Veterans Health Administration, the Veterans Benefit Administration, National Cemetery Administration, the Board of Veterans Appeals, the Veteran Experience Office, all the rest. So it's not about centralizing or, you know, it's about coordinating and, and aligning activity. Uh, and then transparency and accountability. Yeah, at the cart of evolving data as being transparent in the management and the use of the data, being participatory, being collaborative, right? The secretary's vision is leading American wellness and healthcare through the use of data as a strategic asset. To be able to do that, we need to engage with our stakeholders inside and outside, veteran service organizations, the Hill, um, policy advocacy groups, technology. Um, so it's, yeah, it's a kind of in our DNA. What have been the biggest successes that you think you've had in the nine months this strategy's been out, Shmendra, and what have been the hardest ones of these for you to push up the hill? So uh, I really need to uh, celebrate the broad data community across VA. Right? One of the things that's been so amazing for me coming into VA as an outsider, uh, somebody that comes out of the law enforcement, counterterrorism, homeland security space, is the amazing talent across the organization, evenly distributed. And it goes back to the heritage of VA um, building uh, and partnering with research, leading research universities around the country after World War II. The big success here is the continued momentum around galvanizing the community. A specific outcome is we're very close to announcing a joint data and analytics strategy with the Department of Defense, our biggest partner in the federal government. You know, the Veterans journey starts as a service member's journey. In many cases, it starts at birth because military service sometimes is the uh, a family occupation. And so that's an example of where we're bringing the community together uh, broadly across DOD and VA to better serve service members and veterans. The biggest challenge for me, VA is a huge organization. As I mentioned, I'm new to VA. So, you know, learning the business, learning the culture, really coming to, you know, build the relationships. It takes time. Spender Paul. Chief Data Officer at the Department of Veterans Affairs. Great to talk to you again. Thanks for your time today. Thanks, Francis. You can read more about the data revolution at VA at fedscoop.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. You can subscribe to the Daily Scoop podcast everywhere you get your shows, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, SoundCloud, Spotify, and lots more places. Dr. Ryan Vega, one of the innovation leaders at VA, is on the show tomorrow. Until then, I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Thanks very much for listening. Listening.